0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Molly Merson, a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private practice in Berkeley, California, and a psychoanalytic candidate at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Published by Tripart Books 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trepart.net. That's T R A. PART.net. You may also visit my website, Dr. Vanessa Sinclair.net, and the podcast website, RenderingUnconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, PATREON.com. Forward slash VANESSA two three CARL. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
1: Spaces such as these are becoming increasingly rare and increasingly necessary. Um, Places where we can really just talk and let our minds flow and associate. um, Especially because uh, there's like, just sort of what we were talking about, this like heightened heightened sense of like border delineation. But, also simultaneously, I think a sense of, um, uh, permeability intrusion, um, you know, uh, what's inside, what's outside. Um, and there's, yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of like this, this idea even of how do how can our minds even conceptualize of free association, as linked to our mouths to speak it. I mean, I just, you know, it's, um, yeah, these are really tough times. And, and the truth is, they've, it's, it's always been, you know, especially in the States, it's like, and certainly globally too, but it's always been really difficult to tell the truth. And so much of this country, anyway, the history of it, is about who gets to do that, and um, who believes it. Um, I feel like there's so much work that we are having to do to unravel all of that.
0: There's so much work to do. Yeah.
1: And it's amazing, too, how like we just um, continue to um, cling, I think, to, because it seems like the alternative then is like everything falls apart. And um, there is a very large part of me that thinks that's just fine. And there's another part of me that's like, oh, that would probably harm people who are not me more than me. Right? Like, there are people who actually, like, really, really need an intact system and structure in order to survive. Um, Sadly, that's, those are usually the folks that that system and structure fails. So, it's complicated. Like, I think that's one of the things I'm learning most um, in my work right now is, like, how... um, I kind of start off with this burn it down feeling. I sort, sort of start with this like rage and like once I find out the truth about um, injustice for example, specifically, I'm just like, kind of like, fuck this um, big time. <laughs> uh, but I'm also recognizing that, um, I ha- that that's a reflection of my privilege to be able to do that. And um, I need to find a way to translate that into uh, some way to communicate and and actually strategize and have like a long game in mind that doesn't have to come from me but comes from collaborative spaces. Um, And uh, yeah, get strategic. I need to get strategic.
0: Everybody does, strategic and long-term.
1: And long-term, exactly.
0: And and collaborative, like
1: we need each other. And, um, yeah. So, yes. So I'm looking for spaces like that where, um, and I think, you know, it's interesting, people kind of disparage the interweb uh, you know because they say it's like you know uh, not real relationships and cutting yeah you know, I don't know what people say but like some people don't like it and um, I think it's actually made it so I mean I wouldn't have met you otherwise um, it's made it so that people can come together and get to know each other and have spaces for these kind of uh, transformative, conversations. It's also a place that can increase paranoia and denial. Um, but I feel like it, depending on who's in the space, it can, um, or what, you know, what voices are in the space, it can really be, I've found it to be very generative. Um, sometimes something will happen you know, in the bigger picture, and I'll kind of go to Twitter because I'm not exactly sure. I'm like, I know what I think about it, but I'm not exactly sure how might this impact people that aren't me, you know, um, or people that I'm not speaking to directly that day. And it's been so helpful to hear like, oh yeah, like, you know, this is how, you know, a climate change focused person would think about it. This is how, you know, Um, Kimberly Crenshaw would think about it. This is how, you know, and it's just sort of like, oh yeah, okay. Like so many different ways to think about this stuff that, um, I think only enhances the, the dyad. Like I'm thinking about a psychoanalytic dyad, clinical dyad. I think having more and more voices, like just completely enhances that because it brings so many, um, you know there's the whole you know Ogden's third and everything but
0: there's so much more than that <laughs> the third is not a monolith <laughs> what's the psychoanalytic scene like where you are um it's very vibrant there
1: are a lot of um people involved in psychoanalysis both in terms of like your standard training model like we have two um, sort of traditionally quote-unquote Freudian um, training institutes. We have a Lacanian training institute and we have a Jungian training institute um, all in the Bay area, so um, Ohlone territory. And so um, it's very vibrant. We also have um, NCSPP, Northern California Society for Psychoanalytic Psychology, which is sort of a you know, clearinghouse, if you will, of like all sorts of different psychoanalytic thinkers. Um, so there, it's big. And then there are people who are sort of on the, not affiliated with any of the institutes, training institutes, but who are very vibrant in psychoanalytic thinking. Um, because we have like postdoc training institutes that are, um, and post-master's training institutes that are, um, Psychoanalytically focused, um, so it's very alive. Um, and uh, so, I just gave a talk um, with a couple of folks in my. I'm in my third year of training, and um, a couple folks in my cohort. And I gave a talk on whiteness, interrogating whiteness in psychoanalysis. And um, we gave that talk at our institute, um, and then it was also live streamed. Um, the past president of our institute, also joined us for this talk. And um, as far as I'm aware, and I, I th- this is me showing the limits of my historical knowledge, but as far as I'm aware, it's the first time that whiteness was put on the stage in that particular way at our institute. And again, I could be wrong, and I want somebody to correct me if I am, but to... to um, center whiteness in order to deconstruct it. Uh, I don't think happens as certainly doesn't happen as often as I would like, um, in psychoanalysis, but certainly, you know, people have been talking about it. Um, but the fact that we were able to do that and we had 90 attendees, um, almost half of those were live stream, um, was like, Oh, okay. Like, you Know that's not that many people, but that's a lot of people um, because
0: you kind of have to self select into something like that, right? Yeah, it's psychoanalysis in New York. We, as like the <laughs> Umbahaga events, we usually get like 40 people, 50 people, and I, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's um,
1: it was totally amazing, and um, so yeah, it was it was amazing to have that many people attend a talk like that. Um, and I wasn't sure what the reception would be. I worked really hard to figure out how to say what I needed to say about whiteness, because it's so very easy for whiteness talk to replicate whiteness and for things to get enacted that are actually extremely traumatizing and, um, painful. And I, you know, I don't, I haven't heard from everyone who attended, um, but the feedback that I got from people I know was that uh, it, it really helped to demonstrate how we have to talk about our own personal story in such a way that isn't about um, highlighting somebody else's pain um, in order to prove a point, but how we are actually you know, and I, and other people I've spoken to who are, identify as white, uh, how it's really, really important to like, be able to come at this from your own, um, history and the ways in which, you know, like for me, I told the stories of, you know, how I was raised and where, um, where I'm from. And, um, how much of whiteness was steeped into just the you know, physical, structural, architectural environment of where I came from, and um, how even though nobody was talking about it, uh, people were only talking about race in the context of the quote unquote other, which is always interesting to me what that means. <laughs> like, thinking about the other is usually from a white perspective. Um, But that I have to go back into my own history and kind of overlay uh, a whiteness interrogation onto my own past and my own family dynamics and in what ways were we replicating whiteness. And I don't think institutes do that very well with psychoanalysis. Um, I don't think that psychoanalysis gets that kind of interrogation around its own whiteness and like, how the theories get formulated um, from a very specific perspective um, that uh, plays into all of these power structures. Um, You know, there's a narrative that psychoanalysis is, uh, you know, radical. And I think that is true. um, But something that's radical has to stay radical. Um, you know, the whole point is in some ways to put ourselves out of business, right? Because we're helping people know themselves and do their own analytic work and whatever, and communities, helping communities do this. But I think sometimes psychoanalysis can get um, self-fulfilling and self-referential. And um, I think in part, it's, it's because we could really benefit from doing some of, some deep interrogation around like sort of the contextualization of psychoanalysis. And people talk about that, like in, in terms of the social and, you know, like sociocultural and sociopolitical, uh, socioeconomic. Um, I think whiteness needs to get in there too, uh, and be thought about.
0: The thing that always so- made me the most crazy about what psychoanalysis has done to itself is like the insane, uh, rigorous, like entry that anyone has to go through to be able to get into psychoanalysis. Like you have to make sure they're not psychotic and you have to make sure this and this is, isn't going to happen or is going to happen. And you're supposed to tell the analysis that they can't change anything in their lives while they're in analysis because they might <laughs> change their mind again. I mean, they taught us that at, at my what? institute. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, You know, I did it at the time because that's what we were taught to do. And then the longer I was, like, helping people with analysis, I was like, this is crazy. And I actually had my very first analysis, who I, of course, won't say anything about. The only thing I will say is that she, you know, got to a point where she wanted to really radically change her life because she wanted to. Because, you know, that happens sometimes. That could be very healthy. And my supervisor actually was like, you can't let her do that. And I was like, what? And I was like, I'm not saying anything. And he's like, you have to stop her. And I was like, what? And I was like, this is the most unanalytic supervision yes. ever. You're telling oh my- me I have to stop her from making radical changes in her life when she's like, you know, been in a miserable job forever and etc. you know? Holy shit. Yeah. I find that really strange, and I also find it really arrogant that psych- psychoanalysts or psychoanalysis thinks that it's like, I mean, I think it can be really, you know, amazing. I mean, it's ch- completely changed my life and helped me a lot when, when I had my first analysis and second and third. But, um, but, um,
1: <laughs> but I
0: think the idea that, like, you're going to cause a psychotic episode in somebody or something, like, it's dangerous. I think that's really strange. I don't think I don't I don't think someone's going to go psychotic from talking about about <laughs> their lives and uh, going into their fantasies and dreams and stuff. I just don't think so. Sorry. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's
1: it's remarkable. I mean, and what you said about that being the most unanalytic um, supervision you've ever had is like I also think that psychoanalytic training is quite unanalytic. And interestingly, right, Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm just, I feel so confused. And when I get confused, I complain. (laughs) So we can talk to Sarah Ahmed about that. Like, you know, complaint is a feminist act. But also it's like, I'm sitting here being like, okay, like you're asking me to open up. And, you know, me personally as a candidate, you know, I'm like getting into my own everything. Um, Because we have a, what they call a tripartite model, I guess, where it's like, um, you have your seminar you have your cases and then you have your own analysis. And so all that's happening at the same time. And there's like several layers within all of those things. But, um, although I did hear recently, like some institutes, uh, like some in Europe actually require your analysts to approve you to start analytic training. Mm -hmm. You have to have been in analysis for a couple of years before you're allowed to start training. So when you were just talking about, you know, um, the, the sort of the the clinical work that you were doing, um, I thought you were about to talk about the barriers to entry for a candidate <laughs> to become a, an analyst, you know, to be uh, in an uh, analyst. They're training. parallel, right? They're they They're parallel. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole idea about, like, who's analyzable and who's not, I mean, that completely depends on your s- structure and your context. A person who... It, everybody is going to need something a little bit different, right? And if all you have is this very sort of like old fashioned, you know, let's take a tiny little piece of the Oedipus myth and make a whole theory about it. <laughs> if you're just looking at that, then yeah, there's going to be so many people who don't fit into that. They, they just do not. And like to try to make them fit is doing something like what you. Naming of like repressed, continuing to oppress a person who wants to make radical changes. And it's like, isn't analysis, you know, supposed to be about being alive, um, you know, uh, being alive in relationship to aspects of a self and community? And, um, witnessing, I guess, it's like participating in being a, being a member of, I don't know, these are not quite the right words, but when somebody wants to make a change to do the thing and then have space for process, right? Like, okay, so let's think about this together. Okay. Like you did this thing. What was that like? I mean, isn't that what we're trying to do As humans, rather than, like, these are the rules and you have to stay within these rules, I mean, it drives me bananas. It's so harmful. It's so harmful and so limiting and makes me so sad because psychoanalysis, and I hear this from people, and I heard this from Kimberlyn Leary, like, psychoanalysis is personal and it can change your life right? And that's, that's why we're in it. We're in this because it's helped us. Um, not because of the rules or the like pat theories, you know, sometimes I know exactly when somebody is just, and by somebody, I mean, my analyst <laughs> is just repeating a theory. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm, I, I read that too. <laughs> but it's like, there's something else that gets to happen. And this is what can get so missed, right, from, from training institutes, is like something else gets to happen in psychoanalysis um, that cannot, that, that actually, I, mean, I was gonna say can't happen anywhere else, but that's not even true. That's, that's the myth. It's something that does happen in other places. And in psychoanalysis, we get to figure out what our own meaning is. We get to make meaning out of something and we get to play around with meaning because it's like, you know, like what I'm saying to you right here today. I mean, this is all iterative, right? Like I'm going to probably have a different opinion, you know, next year or have thought about this differently or some of this I'm saying for the first time. So I don't really even know yet, you know, so it's like, And that's a psychoanalytic process where it's like we can say things, and we don't have to. We can be curious about it. We don't have we don't have to live by it. We don't have to be like, oh wow, well I made that decision or I made that I said that thing. So now it's like I always have to say that thing. We don't actually have to freeze anything. Um, It can be growthful, and that means we can say things that we say and we go wow I don't even agree with that and yet there's a part of me that said it out loud Mm -hmm. you know and it's like and if there is harm ideally it gets to be processed but if the analyst and the institute and the field the theory isn't willing to engage in their own um sort of interrogation of themselves then it growth cannot happen it's like i, I have a garden i grow my, i grow a lot of food in the garden and flowers and it's like the ground has to be workable for the plant to grow if it's too impacted if the you know if if no new nutrients have been put in you know, the soil doesn't just regenerate on its own if you're extracting from it. So one of the things, um, I'll I'll just share something about one of my supervisors that I have. Um, So the supervisor and I are talking about, um, he sent me this uh, paper from Usha to about like cultural competency in um, case presentation or something like that. Um, she's a great, uh, she's awesome, a great person. And also like her writing is really great because I feel like I can kind of read between the lines with a lot of these, uh, psychoanalytic, um, theorists and, and writers when they're trying to say something on several levels. And because I can identify with like, I have a message that's kind of like, I'm really annoyed And that's my message. (laughs) But I'm trying to say it in a way that's like formulaic, you know, so I feel I'm sure I'm reading into it, but I feel um, an identification with the like, oh, yeah, this is where you're really just trying to make sure that certain people are, you know, able to hear. Anyway, um, we were talking about that. And my supervisor was like, so I assigned this paper for some class. And my supervisor is like, I don't, I don't know. I actually, I realized I don't know how to teach it. And I said, well, maybe you teach the paper by demonstrating what the paper is talking about, which is social location. Um, you know, figuring out what's actually important to you about this paper and where you're coming from and why that's important, and some places where you feel like you might need more education or information or things that you don't know or waste, you know, whatever. Like, I, I feel like that's, and the supervisor is white and I, I feel like that's, um, and so he started laughing and he goes, Oh, I said, why are you laughing? And he said, Oh, cause you did that when you were giving your presentation, you went into a personal story to illustrate something about how, we have to make this personal, not objectified. We can't tokenize, um, you know, like black folks, for example. We can't tokenize, um, you know, certain struggles. We have to actually go into our own story and be vulnerable. And he's like, you're asking me to do that with this group of people I've never met to go into my story and tell it Um, as it pertains to this paper that I assigned and why I assigned it. And I said, and he said, that is really scary. And I said, yeah. And keep in mind, um, I wrote 12 versions of that talk before I gave it. (laughs) So what I ended up sharing was not so raw that I couldn't, that, you know, I had worked on it. And for me that's that's the thing about psychoanalysis is like it gives us an opportunity to to iterate to work through to be like okay like this is a thing and it's really scary at first and then it's maybe a little less scary and then maybe a little less scary and then actually oh now i can now i can actually hold this as a part of myself rather than feel attacked by it and i think for a lot of white folks who are trying to do work around their own whiteness it it's a very similar kind of process of like yeah I can't teach this paper written by you know a South Asian person um and just sort of teach it as a thing out in the world you know I have to go inside myself and figure out how does this how does this resonate for me um and also what about my own life not just like what what of myself can I see in someone else's story? But what about my own story has contributed to the pain that this person is talking about? What about my own story has created the need for a paper about quote unquote cultural competency, which, you know, the languaging around that we can talk about, but what has created a need for this paper specifically? Why does this paper become the other paper? You know, like, What is it about my location and where I'm at? And this is where I like, I wish that our analysts would do this more and our institutes would do this more. Like, what is it about just even existing, you know, in this shape? How did we come to be? What are all the parts that go into that that are not only about what was passed down transgenerationally, individually, and familially, but structurally and socially? Mm -hmm. You know, how did my ancestors get to be white? when they immigrated you know like how did that happen and then someone else's parents didn't get to be that and so what and what has that opened up for me and like all these sorts of things so I feel like psychoanalysis um will yeah it's it can be it's so fascinating and it's so amazing and it's so transformative and also uh you know, it's so powerful, I think that people just shut down because then they can't control it at a certain point. So one of the things I learned pretty early on in my analytic training is that there are no heroes. And um, everybody is human. And even people whom I absolutely 100% admire, and like would follow anywhere, like, they have flaws. And actually realizing that helped me be a better clinician and a better human because I didn't feel anymore like I had to buy into this. Like I have to be perfect. I have to, you know, have a status. I have to, you know, always do what people want me to do. And, you know, I, I feel pretty grateful about having learned that early on, even though it was a really tough lesson to learn because I fell pretty hard Mm -hmm. And there are so many tools that power can use, like, and whiteness is one of them, right? And um, it's like power for power's sake, and who has access to that? It's like, yeah, you know, I think especially, I think about it, you know, in the context of whiteness, just because that's where I'm saturated right now. But it's like, you know, if you have something that was surreptitiously gained, you know, or problematically gained, then you know that you know, you can't actually, it's not actually yours, you know, like all the, the, you know, land in the United States is like, not actually ours. It's not actually private property. You know, it's, it's settler call, you know, it's colonized and um, stolen. And so it's like, when we have this, and so is the labor, the labor is stolen and the, the economy has been stolen off of the backs of people who never got paid and were tortured. And it's just like, when we have that, it's not a real having of a thing. It's like, Oh, I, at least I'm not that person. At least I not lower or whatever. Like in this case, you know, at least I'm not the candidate, the candidate can just kind of figure it out. And eventually, you know, when I die, the candidate will be in my position, like, you know, this kind of weird nepotism thing. But then it's also like, you know, uh, you hold on, I think we hold on tighter when they're ill gotten gains. And it means that we don't think anymore. It means that we lose humility, we lose empathy, we increase narcissistic wound, you know, personal wounds, as well as wounding other people. And it's just so devastating and harmful. And it's, it's like, uh, you know, Somebody who has amassed their fortune but then becomes completely paranoid of losing it and then just sits on top of their money and you find their corpse 100 years later on top of the pile of money, you know. I mean, I don't know where that fantasy is coming from, but like, you know, it's just kind of of, yeah, it's just, and it's like, wow, no wonder like our planet is dying. No wonder we are killing each other. No wonder there's like, you know, just all this fucking violence and, and racism and trauma. And, um, you know, even like one of the, so if the conference goes on, uh, you know, um, in a week and a half, which I'm, I'm hoping that it does, and you know, there's there's been so much work put into it. Um, one of the uh, panels I'm on, it's a round table um, about reparations. And, um, you know, it, it, it's like, how hard is it to even have that conversation about reparations for for descendants of slaves or enslaved people, right? It's like, People who were forcibly, you know, carted. I mean, it's just the fucking trauma is, it runs deep and it's in the blood of our country. And our country, you know, can't talk about it.
0: Refuses. Can't,
1: yeah, refuses. And distorts it, distorts the conversation. And... Um, you know, just, yeah, it's just like, it's amazing. Just the fact that we are going to, the idea is kind of like we're going to, p- folks are going to watch us have a conversation about it. And that is like, so, the fact that that is so revolutionary pisses me off, <laughs> you know? Like I, I, but that, so just kind of looping that back into power and how, you know, the institutes, like, you know, can't help, I think, but be looped into these bigger issues of power, especially how power was manifest in this country, and is manifest. It's like, um, yeah, it's like, how could it not be related? How could this stuff not be echoes of, you know, the fact that This land, you know, was brutally stolen, and you know, people were people were stolen and brought here, and you know, forced labor and no. I mean, it's just not even that, but families torn apart. I mean, it's just like layers upon layers. Um,
0: Yeah, and until it's it's addressed, nothing's ever going to get fixed.
1: Nothing, nothing's ever going to change. And 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 the truth, I think, the truth is that. We have like stuff has to to strategically fall apart. And you know it's sort of like in a clinical situation where let's say somebody like I work a lot with folks with eating disorders, right So it's like let's say somebody um, has like a go-to, uh, you know, let's say they binge, right? So they have a go-to of like, when they have emotional stress, they go to this particular thing. Right. And it's like, you can say like, okay, take away that particular thing. Don't do that, which is a lot of what, you know, some sort of more CBT approach would be like, okay, don't do that thing. But it's like, until there's like a, a reckoning with the actual emotional cycle of what's happening inside the person and a different thing that can provide a different kind of feedback loop, unless those two things are happening simultaneously as well as process around like, okay, what happens when the person goes toward that harmful thing, then it's like, then nothing is, you can't, you know, but you can't imagine what this less harmful thing would be unless you're actually grappling with the pain, and the and the trauma and the the you know emotional landscape. And this is this is why people push back so hard against psychoanalysis. And this is where psychoanalysis shuts down. Um, when it has access to that kind of power, the kind of power that is a colonizing power. It's about othering. It's about dividing. It's about um, uh, this kind of fucked up epistemophilic kind of, you know, like I have to know, like there's, there's one thing and, you know, I mean, for, for my, my institute is pluralistic and, um, there are a lot of, we, we are exposed to a lot of, uh, different sort of viewpoints about things. Supervision is pretty, um. You know, we can, you can find a supervisor who would fit any particular type of, uh, psychoanalytic theory that you might be interested in. Um, so we're, you know, we're really, I think that's really awesome. And yet like, we are so white, we are so white and, um, that is a problem, you know, um, because well, for very obvious reasons, but it's just how much can, like, I can't presume to know. So that's, for me, that's like one of the limitations. Um, you know, and I'm grateful that my Institute is willing to look at things, um, after the talk we gave last week, uh, or yeah, last week, um, we got a letter from the president sent out to all of membership that, you know, they're taking it really seriously and they started like, uh, some kind of task force or something to focus on, you know, uh, race and, um, inclusion in the curriculum and in the faculty and in the Institute. So the fact that people are like willing to, you know, at least willing to start doing something, uh, feels really important um and that said it's it's a pervasive issue i think across all institutions especially ones that i don't know about your institute but mine's all volunteer run mm-hmm. so that that adds like a whole other layer
0: yeah i think it's the same
1: mm-hmm.
0: they all, yeah they all volunteer their time to teach and yeah mm-hmm.
1: yeah so it's like You know, that's where it's people's personal, uh, you know, both generosity and conviction, you know, where they would volunteer to teach, volunteer to be on committees, volunteer to lead, volunteer to do all of that. Um, And there's a lot of layers in there. I think psychoanalysis can be so transformative, and I love it so much and it has given me so much. Like I feel so fed by it. Um, i have I have grown um, and been able to like just really fully more fully participate in my life and in the world. Um, and uh, I don't think it has to be you know the way it is and I, I think that there are ways that um psychoanalysis you know if we're thinking about this on a social level um it can be so transformative it you know it could really help us bring my institute has this really cool new um track called the community psychoanalysis track where the Institute recognizes that there is such thing as community psychoanalysis that's been happening. It's been happening for a very long time and, uh, we are plugged in. And so people do a training case that is working at that, you know, uh, in that community setting. And it's like, that is so cool. And if we could do more of that and a bigger scale Uh, maybe people could afford psychoanalysis, maybe um, clinicians could afford to do psychoanalysis, maybe, um, you know, to provide it, maybe training would be less restrictive, maybe even the idea of who's analyzable would become more complex. Because, again, it, it, it means that, you know, it really depends on context and what you're including in your concept of what psychoanalysis is and it doesn't have to be this one-on-one dyadic private you know thing and it doesn't have to have anything to do with Oedipus you know it can be it can be something else Um, I have a colleague who is working on revising you know doing a different take on the Oedipus myth where uh, she's talking about um, how it might be representative of whiteness and other systems of power it's just like, can we, can we dig back in, you know, to psychoanalysis and actually like um, revive its radical roots? Because that is an ongoing project and um, you can't stay radical if it's just the same people saying the same things over and over again.
0: Yeah. And then the next generation just, memorizing that and repeating it like as if it's dogma. Exactly, then it's no—that that is the moment it, it's no longer radical. No, it's supposed to be about everybody finding their voice and speaking. That's right,
1: yes. And I feel so grateful that I'm getting that opportunity but I feel like I've really had to fight for it and um, that's partly me and my history Um, It's partly my privilege, it's partly um, that I'm being encouraged, you know, Um, but also because I wouldn't be able to stay in, I I wouldn't be able to stay in this training if I were not doing that. I would feel smothered.
0: Yeah, and you need a lot of support because training takes up a lot of time and resources. I was Mm -hmm. very happy. I went to, my first analysis was when I was in grad school. And he was a candidate, and I was really glad that I had had that analysis already uh, for like uh-huh. four years. Be- because if my training analysis had been my first analysis, you know, yeah. I would have a really bad taste in my mouth, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because it was really like authoritarian, and then I ended up right. having a Lacanian analysis after that to kind of work through all the trauma from my training analysis. Oh my- <laughs> Wow. I'm in that position
1: now where I'm I'm starting. So my training analysis is pretty much done. So I'm thinking about, you know, what I want to do next in terms of do I want another, you know, analysis or do I want to try something completely different? You know, like, I don't know. I I mean, I I was thinking about uh, I read a paper, a couple papers from Griffin Hansberry, who's out in New York. And I went to his website he seems really cool. I love his papers. Like I just cried actually when I read the most recent one, but, um, the, his website says that he does EMDR and psychoanalysis, you know? And I'm just like, right. Like that's how is, how is that not psychoanalytic? (laughs) Because it's really about this internal state of, of being right. About like, encouraging us to find our voice and encouraging you know us to like find a way to be with ourselves and with the world and all of its complexities and multitudes so I don't know it was it's just refreshing you know and then Orna you know Gralnek has her tv show and it's just like there's all these different ways that um you know it doesn't have to be like you said regurgitating canon you know
0: absolutely you know Griff is Jeremiah from Jeremiah's Vanishing New York. I know, I found that out. <laughs> that was so amazing when, when I found that out. I was so happy. Was I, like, know. Oh, of course. I
1: know. <laughs> so perfect. I uh I read so I read the I read one of the articles that he wrote, like, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago for The Vanishing New York. And I was like, Oh, this is so cool. Like in the New Yorker. Right. I think it was something like that. And then we read one of his, one of Griffin's papers in, um, uh, one of our intersubjectivities classes. And then I was like doing some research. Like I want to know more about who this person is because of the way he writes. And it's just like, finally a paper that I can relate to that feels contemporary and um, I found that link, <laughs> like I found, you know, when I Googled it. him. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, I read that already.
0: That's so cool. It
1: yeah, I mean, so cool. I'm really hungry for that kind of stuff. I'm super hungry for, like, it's really, really hard to um, translate some of what Freud talks about to the people I actually see in my practice. Yeah.
0: Can you come to Copenhagen? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I would love to. You should oh come gosh, to Copenhagen I've, if you can. I've, I've never been. Yeah, I'm doing a conference all about psychoanalytic community outside of the institutes.
1: <gasps> and Lara's serious? gonna
0: come. Really? Yeah. When is it? July twenty fourth to twenty
1: sixth. Oh my gosh. I am so tempted. I am so tempted. Think about it. That is so rad. That's fun. so awesome. So are you doing like a do you do like a lot of different um events like it seems like whenever I see you on Twitter like you're you're letting us all know about the different things <laughs> that you're doing and I'm just like That's pretty
0: much all so, I do now. Yeah. 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 This is the first one that we're going to have like inter- internationally like a, a group of people f- that would that would like meet with us had one in Iceland a few years ago um but they didn't specifically like frame it under this like we called ourselves das Umbahage. this is Das oh, Umbahage yeah. in their culture yeah so it's like yeah, civilization have been on that email list in the past yeah so civilization and its discontents, and uh, and uh we were the discontent of with the psychoanalytic civilization basically was our idea um nice. Yeah, so so yeah, so we're having a little conference, international conference, and I'm inviting cool. more people from like Sweden and Denmark and different places around here to kind of meet with the New Yorkers and whoever else wants to come. That's so great. It it's have going you, to be pretty have, small because the theater only seats 65, so I think I'm only going to have, like, 50 people. Because I want it to be, like, a giant process group weekend, basically. Yeah. Where we can all actually, like, talk. Not, like, people giving papers and people listening and then going, oh, that's yeah. great, but, like, people actually, like, having conversations. That's the idea. Well,
1: that is one way to disrupt whiteness and power, right? If if everything is sort of equalized, you know, like, and, and like, redistributed. Like that's that is so amazing, and then to have a space like that to yes. do it in, that is just incredible. Yes.
0: Have you found I'm the donating the space for us? Oh.
1: See, that's you know, that's the other thing about being in the states is that it's really hard, and it's not impossible because some some communities have been working on this for a very long time, right? How to redistribute um, resources to community level and like sort of, you know, equalize, if you will, that, that power. Um, So there are spaces in which these things happen. There are community centers, but um, in the psychoanalytic world, it, it seems increasingly difficult to find spaces that can really help facilitate conversation. Even my whiteness panel had to, it had to be a panel. We wanted it to be a circle where we were all talking together but it had to be a panel because the uh, because of the architecture of the space so if if because of the architecture of the space if we had had a circle we could have had only half as many people there so there's an attendance problem a limit there and then because we were live streaming it we had to have the video camera facing us and there's a single camera so it would have been very difficult to move that camera all around you know to try and like video the the people talking mm. so I'm thinking about you know just even the space of a movie theater and i'm I'm I'm, I'm thinking that maybe all the seats are pointing toward a stage so theres still that kind of setup but like the psychoanalytic architecture too and like how does that facilitate space and how does that facilitate conversation um, it's not very blank slate you know it's it's actually quite um, already imbued with something mm-hmm.
0: I just finished the book I've been working on yesterday, and uh, there's this great quote by Freud who, because of what you were talking about before, when they were having all of the discussions about lay analysis and all of these kinds of things and training and institutional training and everything. And Freud gave his perspective on the situation. And Uh it goes along with what you were saying. This is how he ended his paper to address their whole wanting to regulate and have only physicians be analysts and all that kind of thing. He said, It is by no means so important what decision you give on the question of lay analysis. It may have a local effect, but the things that really matter, the possibilities in psychoanalysis for internal development... Can never be affected by regulations and prohibitions. Mm, that's radical, right there. That,
1: that's it. That's it. And and except that, um, it can prohibit who is allowed into authorized institutional spaces. And so it, it, unfortunately, it could, we could consider that, that, that what Freud is saying positions somebody as having a choice, but in fact, um, it actually can mean that somebody doesn't have a choice and so has to do it in, you know, quote unquote, lay analysis training because, um, because, it's really about access i I think he would be right if access were equitable but it's not and so i think that actually changes i I like the sentiment but i don't think it's accurately representational of power structures and who's who's allowed into the spaces and who isn't
0: exactly
1: right or who finds themselves reflected in the spaces and who doesn't
0: but that's why he wanted people to be able to train his lay analyst, and he wanted free clinics to offer something. I know else. that that
1: that is like I mean I I hear the NHI kind of does some or was doing some stuff like that, which is cool. I don't know whether that will still happen now, but I am so into that. Like I would love to figure out how to do that when we started.
0: Dawson behind that was one of our big goals jameson and i wanted to start some sort of free clinic or training program but it's yeah. so complicated in the u.s it's just yeah. like, i, I mean this is, there must be a way but it you have to really like i don't know so so that's <laughs> it's that's bigger than me it,
1: that's where it falls apart you know that's where the it's a it's a good idea what what he's saying but that like can it really exist except in fantasy is this place where i don't think psychoanalysis has really taken up seriously enough which is what i like about you know how pink is doing this community psychoanalysis track where candidates are involved in a community psychoanalysis that already exists and um there gets to be like a mutual authorization happening there right because those um, agencies have already gone through all the regulations and all of that, you know, sort of whatever stuff, the authorization from the state, and so we can kind of plug into that, but it's like, you know, in some ways these agencies are kind of like what you described as your training experience, where it's just like working three different places you know, 50, 60 hours a week, and then being, like, told, like, why, why do you rely on your paycheck? You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, uh, the United States is pretty messed up. Yeah,
0: there's a lot of work to do. But that also goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, and like, finding these collaborative spaces to work, because that would be the way to do it, is to find community spaces that are already set up, like, logistically yes. and willing to work with people who are wanting to train as analysts and find people that want to be in analysis and, and have it all work for everybody. Like, have everybody totally. benefit from the structures coming together.
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think that's the dream, right? Is like that then folks who are, who are clinicians at community agencies can be, you know, considered candidates in an analytic training program, the whole everything would have to be shaped differently, right? Because these, these, these training institutes are shaped for a particular iteration of psychoanalysis, which is the private model. But you'd have to, re, so you'd have to reshape it, you know? And, and that's totally possible. And like, so amazing to consider doing that. Um, so, but it takes time, I think. It takes time, and, and like we were talking about, you know, strategy be able to do that
0: thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious you've just heard a discussion with Molly Merson for more please visit her website mollymerson.com that's m-o-l-l-y m-e-r-s-o-n Dot com Rendering Unconscious is also a book: Rendering Unconscious: Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, published by Trapart Books 2019, and also available as an ebook through iBooks and Kindle. For more information, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T.net. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p a t r e o n. com forward slash v a n e s s a two three c a r l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, a track from Mementeros. Fucking and fucking and fucking her. The big, the butch, the gal, honey. Come in, she said, stretched out, nice and early. Good evening. That's some good pussy you've got there, he said, and watched the door close. So she does know that she's going to be let loose on me. One single word. Also, there was nothing to say. Her? She laughed. Of course. What did she say? Disrupting the expected, even if momentary. Violation, message of the shadow, passed down from organ, lauding, they are the same. We are the same. Seeing clearly, waiting, nuances create the friction that brings us closer transcendence into the other, the shadow, the lay of her fathers. Just be a good girl, just be a man. himself into her, forth between the two, myth and psyche, using them to provide insights for each other, preventing either from being taken on its terms only. Candy looked out the motel room window, not a opened the door and hurried outside, down the stairs, hoping that Joe wouldn't show up until much later.